Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. Corpus coming in, Gold in a world record. The birth of a legend. 458 is the total, out of which Bradman has made 309 not out. It's a world's record. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. To this is your sporting life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Here's your host, Sam Edmund. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. As always, we're here for our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Today, well, we're joined by a man who was universally admired for his toughness, bravery, and leadership on the football field. Nathan Burke was a remarkably consistent performer for St Kilda across a 323-game, 16-year, highly decorated career. St Kilda's helmeted number three was in the trenches every week, every quarter, and every minute, regardless of what the scoreboard looked like. And it's a great pleasure to welcome the Saints' former captain. Nathan, hello. Thanks for joining us. Morning, Sam. Uh, Thanks very much for having me. Now, where do we find you, and how are you coping with these bizarre times at the moment? Um, like most people, you find me at home <laughs> at the moment. Good boy. Good boy. I haven't, uh, haven't used my one hour just yet, but uh, no, I'm down here in, in Sandringham with my wife and uh, three daughters all hold up. But um, no, all, all going well. We're fitting well, which is the main thing. And do you get a look in there at home? As you say, you're outnumbered there. Your lovely wife, Fiona, your daughters, Ruby, Molly and Alice. I, I can't imagine you getting a look in there. Uh, no, no. I... Um, I was a little bit upset the old footy frenzy thing finished because uh, that gave me license to head off into the other room and watch the footy while they were watching <laughs> The Bachelor and, and things like that. But uh, the other night when it wasn't on, I uh, was a bit stuck. So <laughs> I was appreciating the footy every night of the week. Well, did Alice go into the other room to watch the footy? We know she likes that. She's still on track to be St Kilda's first father-daughter pick, isn't she? Um, well, she, she's a chance. There's a chance, yeah. She's played the last couple of years with the uh, Sandy Dragons in the under-18 competition and, mm. and really enjoyed it and liked it. So she becomes draft eligible this year in October. She she turns 18 just before the draft. So she, she's a chance, but um, she, she probably lasts about a, a quarter, quarter and a half and then starts to wander. So <laughs> uh, I, I'm happy with that at this stage. Would this potentially make for an awkward household, Berkey? I mean, you could end up coaching against her, given your role, obviously, as the coach of the Western Bulldogs AFLW squad. Um, it, it could be slightly awkward. Um, some people have asked me, how will you handle that? And so <laughs> I said, look, uh, I, I barrack for Alice. Um, and depending on the state of the ladder and uh, where which conference we're in and things like that, I'd barrack for St Kilda. So uh, there, there's a, a lot of things to sort of play out before I can absolutely say, yes, I'll be cheering her on. For sure, for sure. What a great problem to have, and hopefully you do come across that in the near future. Hey, staying with the fairer sex, you grew up down Frankston Way as the son of Barry and Glanis, but you had three older sisters to keep you honest down there as well. 
I did, yes. Uh, I was the youngest of, of four, and um, it's probably one of the reasons why I've sort of gravitated to the to the uh, AFLW at this stage because I, I grew up around female sport with the three elder sisters all playing sport, and they were a little bit like me. They, you know, every, every season you had a, a different sport, so they were playing basketball, they were playing cricket, they were playing netball, they were doing anything that they possibly could. So I got dragged around to to look at all those and um, yeah, just really enjoyed it. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I I think female sport is something that's probably been, been a bit ingrained in me. Yeah, but if we go back to your the beginning, I guess the origins of your evolution as a footballer, your dad, Barry, what are your early memories of, of Barry and what did he teach you about the game, Nathan? So my early memories are sort of every Saturday heading off to the... To the football, my, my dad coached local football down in Frankston with uh, the Pines down there. He coached at Clayton as well for, for several years. So Saturday mornings was getting up early, um, getting thrown in the car, and you, you'd be there for the sort of the, the thirds, the reserves, the seniors. Mm-hmm. You'd pretty much wave goodbye to the parents, and uh, as soon as you arrived, and you'd be off, you'd be climbing trees, you'd wait for the siren to go, you went out in the ground and you'd kick the ball. And you'd, you'd basically, the rule was you'd, you've got to be back by the the, the last siren. Of course, you'd, you'd go back in between and ask for a pie and a can of Coke, but then you'd go off again. And um, that was sort of my grounding, just, just being at the local football every weekend and, and probably having my father in, in sort of leadership positions in those clubs as well. Uh, that probably stuck with me. Uh, so sort of subliminally, I, I suppose, um, which is why I've sort of gone down the, the captain and, and leadership path as well. Set a really, really good example mm. in those areas. But uh, yeah, it, it was just a, a local football background growing up. That uh, even if my mum was working in the canteen and dad was coaching, there was probably another. Um, 30, 40 sets of parents around there to look after you if you ever got in trouble. Geez, you paint a great picture there, and, and don't we all yearn for those days again? I especially love getting the canteen voucher, Berkey, and uh, you just go back yep. and forth to that thing during the quarter break. So so you pulled on the red shorts to play for Pines as a kid. I, I guess growing up, most kids wonder, am I good enough to make it? For you, was the VFL-AFL always the goal, and did you always have that confidence that you could get there, or was it something that hit you relatively late on? Um. It was, it was something you'd love to do as a as a young kid. We we were my mum and dad grew up in Richmond, so we were Richmond barrackers the whole way through. Um, I, I played cricket, I played basketball, and the, I always remember my dad sort of saying to me that just just keep playing those, keep playing those, but there will come a time when you'll have to make a decision. If you're any good, you'll, you'll have to pick one and, and stick to that. And that's probably going to be around about 15, 16 years of age. And as it turned out, the the pathway of football being in the European school boys team and then making the Teal Cup team and then being invited to St Kilda under 18, it, it sort of, um, under 19 at the time, um, it sort of made my pathway for me. It made my decision for me because... Mm those sports put me on a pathway and the other ones I wasn't good enough to be on a pathway. So, um, yeah, it did sort of just evolve. Um, and the, I, I just always remember enjoying what I was doing. Every single season I played, I, I loved it and I played it and I just wanted to play it more. And I think because of those reasons, the, 
I'm a firm believer that if you enjoy something, you, you practice it more. And if you practice more, you get better. And that enjoyment sort of put me on that pathway to uh, end up where I did. Okay, so you're invited to St Kilda Under-19s, which turned out to be a very sound invitation indeed. And you go on to make your senior debut, round seven, 1987. It was a win against Richmond at Moorabbin. Ironically, the Tigers would be the opposition for your last game 16 years on. But on debut, you have 17 disposals and you see Tony Lockett kick six, Ken Sheldon, Nicky Winman, Rod Owen kick four apiece. Now, it's a foreign scoreline for the current generation, Bergie. You win 137 to 114. What are the enduring memories of the day itself? Um, yeah, it's uh, a long time ago now, but uh, it, it sort of it happened really, really quickly because I played a full season in, in the under 19s, and uh, I we're still playing cricket um, over the preseason, and I got hit in the thigh with a cricket ball, and it developed into a very sort of nasty corky and everything. So I. I missed most of the preseason, and they said, "Okay, we'll just play another year in the under 19s So I did the under preseason under nineteens, played the first two games in the under nineteens, and then they said, "Oh, you know, how about a game in the reserves?" So I played a game in reserves, and sort of three games later, after that initial one, I was in the senior. So it, it was a bit of a whirlwind, to be totally honest. And uh, I remember Daryl Baldock inviting my father and I into the into his office after four reserves games and he said, look, I think we're, we're going to give the young fella a game. And my, I was only sort of 70 kilograms ringing wet at the time and yeah. my dad said, oh, look, you know, is he a bit small, you know, playing out here with these big blokes in the mud at Moorabbin and you know, he, had his, he had his doubts and I basically said, Dad, who, who are you to tell the great Del Baldock what to do? Uh, I think he knows more than you. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of, it all happened really, really quickly. And the, the memories on the day were, I, I just loved playing at Moorabbin where you'd park out in the out in the field on the oval next to it and then you would walk down Linton Street um, just with the crowd, line up at the gate with the crowd and in you'd walk and everyone would be patting on the back. And it was just such a, a crowd-friendly atmosphere the way the whole day unfolded. And the... The one thing I do remember in the game, it was probably because there was a headline afterwards, and I think the headline was Nathan Ghost into the big time because I bent down to... I, I turned around, actually, the ball came over my shoulder and I saw this yellow and black flash coming in the other direction and it was the great Jimmy Jess. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently Jimmy, sort of, as he was prone to do, hung out a uh, one of his elbows and it missed my uh, head by mere millimetres. And uh, people say if they had it hit me, I'd, that would have been probably the end of me. But it missed by millimetres. Um, I got the footy and away we went. But uh, after the game is when the nerves hit in. I remember being sitting in the team dinner being violently ill that night because I think all the nerves from the day just pent up and had to be released at some stage. So, yeah, it was funny things that you remember. It's probably the crowd walking in, the Jimmy Jess. The, um, I, I couldn't tell you. I, I know we won but I couldn't tell you what the scoreline was or who else actually got a kick. Well, we'll come back to the Moorabbin experience a little bit later because you can never hear too much about that. But just going back to Daryl Baldock, your first coach, I mean, didn't he once ask you in one of these early phases of your career the three things you wanted to be said about you when you finished up? And, and what were they? What did you What did you offer up? Yeah, it was a really great thing Daryl did, and I, and I try and do it with my um, players at the moment. He, he just said, "Yeah, when when you finish, what do you want people to 
say about you? And I didn't know. Um, I, I I thought, well, what what does Daryl want me to say? And I remember I, I, I replied with something that just wasn't really appropriate. And he said, yeah, no, nah, I reckon you can do better than that. Go away and uh, come back tomorrow and um, and tell me what they are. So I went away and I thought, hey, what, what does Daryl want me to say? And I kept thinking like that. But then eventually it was that, no, really, what, what do I want people to say about me? And um, I think in the end, off the top of my head, I came up with, with hard and tough, loyal and consistent. Because consistency was always something my father drummed into me. He, he used to get really frustrated about players who were were really, really good one week and then they'd go missing the next week and it, it used to drive him and his mates sitting there watching the Richmond games mad. So uh. that was the word that came up. So I went back to Daryl in his office. I said, Dad, I've come up with come up with the, the three. It was hard and tough and loyal because at the time we had Trevor Barker and Joffa Cunningham and Greg Burns and everyone was using the word loyal uh, about those guys. And I thought, you know, that, that would be great if they could say that about me as well, like they talk about... Uh, Trevor and, and Joffa so uh, put that one in and consistent he said great good I, I like those now uh, how are we going to do it and it was all about okay how do we make you hard and tough well you've got to be more than 70 kilograms and um, how do we make you consistent okay well we, we've got to actually give you some skills we've got to teach you how to play in different positions and do all that sort of stuff so um, it's, it's it's stuff that coaches do these days but it was probably done a lot less sophisticated in a sophisticated manner way back then, but the the uh, the outcome was, was really powerful. You mentioned Trevor Barker there. I mean, given the longevity of your career, Nathan, the remarkable thing is you actually probably really played with three generations of players. There was obviously Trevor in the early days, and then you had Danny Frawley as captain for nine years while you were kicking the ball to Plugger, yeah. and as I said, Winmar was running a muck off a wing, and then in the twilight you shared the change room with the likes of Nick Rewald, Kaczynski, Del Sando, and Brendan Goddard. So without trying to make you sound old. It's, it's a remarkable, <laughs> remarkably long career that, that spanned three generations of players at that club. Yeah, and it's... Um, people ask me, you know, are, are you upset you didn't win a grand final? Do you feel unfulfilled you didn't win a grand final? And what's the highlight of your career? And because um, we didn't win a grand final, obviously that would have been the, the highlight. But uh, my, my highlight that I'd put out there is the fact that I did manage to last so long and play with those players. I don't have a great deal of memorabilia sort of around the house or anything like that, but the club did give me, there's one little plaque there, and it's got every teammate that I played with, and there's exactly 200. So I had exactly 200 teammates uh, over that time, and it's just fun every now and again to, to just look at the list and, and go down it and, and reminisce. And, it, and it's not just the the, the Lockets and the you know, Harveys and Winmars and those sorts of guys. It's you know, the Jason Daniels and, and Brett Moyle and um, you know, Damien Kaczynski and Greg Jones. They're, they're sort of names that you just read that suddenly old oh, memories come back, memories come back, and really good memories about good blokes that you met that might not have gone on to become champion footballers, but you had the chance to actually 
you know, meet these people, become friends with them, and uh, you know, share some good times. And that, to me, is is the highlight of the career. Oh, it's a fantastic memento to have. And and Baldock was the first of seven coaches in your time. And Alan Davis followed him. Ken Sheldon, Stan Els, Tim Watson, Malcolm Blight, and Grant Thomas. At the end, we might touch on a few of those gents uh, as we get on throughout the show here on This Is Your Sporting Life. Brought to you as always by our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. Next. A blossoming Nathan Burke takes flight at Moravan. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, great to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, we're with St Kilda icon Nathan Burke. And Berkey, for a lot of people watching, I guess, your generation of players run around, you were known as the bloke in the helmet. Can you tell us when you started wearing it and and the origins of it, why you did? Yeah, certainly, Sam. Um, I I had a bit of a problem where if I got a, a knock in the head, I wouldn't actually get knocked out. Uh, unconscious that that never happened but I'd get probably about five minutes after the hit I'd get the blurred vision so I couldn't actually see out of all the fields of vision um, after the game I'd get the headaches and the nausea associated with a really bad migraine so they um, this was happening sort of that one stage yeah probably happened about three out of five six weeks and uh, I was coming off, and Ken Sheldon was the coach at the time, and mm. I think it was around about 91, 92, and, and uh, naturally, there was only a couple of players on the bench at the time. He said, mate, we, we might not be able to keep playing if you're going to come off all the time. Uh, we need to do something. So uh, I, I had it diagnosed by neurosurgeons and things like that, and they came up with that it was a, a form of migraine that was brought on by a knock. So it wasn't actually concussion. It was just a form of migraine, which... Uh, at the time, was good news. Um, yeah. what, what we know now about sort of the head injuries is that it was actually a form of concussion, but it, it allowed me to keep getting rolled out there week after week after week, which I'm not bitter about. That was just the information that we had. And uh, Kenny said, look, we need to try something. So naturally, the, the thing to try was the helmet. Now, you know, I was just a, a young 21, 22-year-old fella. No one else was sort of wearing them at the time for any length of, of time. So in the end, it was put to me. It was, mate, you, you try this and hope that it works or you sit in the stand and you watch your teammates running around and that was never going to be an option. So I tried the helmet and uh, I can tell you sort of anecdotally, I had the issue less through hits in the head. I still got it through hits in the jaw or the nose or something like that. Um, but I'd, I'd get a whack in the head and I'd be thinking, okay, is this going to happen? Am I going to get the blue vision? And I wouldn't. Sometimes I would. Sometimes I would just sort of decide to stay on the field and tag somebody because I could see a couple of metres ahead. So I could Jeez. follow someone around but couldn't actually see where the ball was. So the coach would sort of say, well, why, why are you tagging that bloke? Why did you make that choice? Well, basically, he was the only one I could see, so I didn't want to come off. That was a stupid thing she used to do in those days. But, um, yeah, and that, that was the reason why it was, it was 
diagnosed as a, as a form of migraine, but as we know now, it's just a specific type of concussion. Yeah, such a serious issue. And it's great that it helped you to some degree. I mean, a lot of the experts now, they tell you the jury's out on helmets and concussion and what effect they may or may not have. Obviously, we see Caleb Daniel yep. running around now with one for the Western Bulldogs, but are you surprised watching from afar now that more players aren't willing to use one? Uh, a, a little bit because I guarantee you there are players who probably would have a similar condition to what I had. Um, you know, the, the experts say that you know they, they don't actually help and it stop, doesn't stop the brain rattling and all that sort mm. of stuff. My, my, my first thought is, okay, if, if I'm going to punch you in the head right now, you've got a choice to put the helmet on or not put the helmet on. What are you going to choose? Yeah. I think most people would probably put it on. But the other thing is that concussion takes all different forms. Some people are very easily to get knocked out unconscious. Some just get, you know, they've got hard heads. You can whack them as hard as you want. Nothing's going to happen. Other people have the issues like mine. So the way I look at it is if, if it helps your specific type of, of, of concussion, why wouldn't you actually use it? And uh, we've seen Angus Brayshaw have some issues and had a few chats with Angus along the way. And, and again, he, he was in a similar situation. You either try something and it works or, you know, you spend a long time out of the game and reluctantly he tried it and I don't think he's missed one since. Whether that's his particular form of concussion that is helping or not, I'm not too sure. But, uh, yeah, certainly I think they do have their place. Yeah, I mentioned Caleb Daniel, but obviously Angus has had great success with his. You're spot on there. Um You'd been mainly a dependable small defender in your early years at VFL level, but in not AFL level, but in '92, Berkey, your former teammate and then the coach that you mentioned earlier at the time, Ken Sheldon, did he ask you for a round of golf? And it would uh, turn out to carry far more significance than whether you were putting well or not, didn't it? It was a pretty telling moment in your career. Yeah, yeah, it certainly was, Sam. Um, as you said, I was plying my trade basically as a small defender in the back pocket. Uh, getting yelled at by Danny Frawley quite regularly. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we Bomber asked me to, Kenny Sheldon asked me to play a game of golf down at Brighton. So it was a little bit unusual playing a game of golf with a coach at, at that time. So we played nine holes and nothing was really said. And in my mind, I'm thinking, is he going to ask me to be traded somewhere else? Or, or you know, am I on the chopping block? Or what am I going to do? And in the end, he, he basically started up the conversation of, you know, now you, you can't be a back pocket for the rest of your, your life. You know, what, what do you want to do? And I said, yeah, I want to make my way up into the midfield. And he, he said, look, I, I think you should too. And um, I, I'm going to give you the... Op- Most importantly, he said, look, I'm, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. I'm going to play in the midfield. And again, now what do we need to do to, to make sure you're successful at it? So one, he, he showed faith in me to take me out of the back pocket and put me in the midfield. And two, he gave me the opportunity. So it's one thing to actually say to someone, I think you can do it. It's another thing to actually put them in there and give them the opportunity. So I, I sort of credit um, you know, Kenny Sheldon enormously for that sort of shift change in my career, going from just a, being a back pocket player to a, a midfielder because he, he had faith and... Um, actually gave me the opportunity. Yeah, so the next season, 93, you really take flight as a midfielder and you don't look back. You're 23, you win your first Trevor Barker medal as St Kilda's best and fairest, obviously, and your first All-Australian nomination as well. Now, the club itself finished 10 and 10, I think, so two games outside the top six. But personally, individually, you must have felt like it had all come together. Uh, Yeah, to a degree. Um, Although I probably never felt 
completely, completely safe. <laughs> it's just my my personality. That uh, you know, even though you, know, you you win all Australian, you win the best and fairest. You, know, you every preseason you look around you and you see you know, Robert Harvey's and and other players that we draft into the club at the time and. Um, you look at them and you think, sheesh, yeah, even though I've done well, a couple of bad games, and these guys are going to be taking my spot as well. So you've always had that slight degree of paranoia that you need to actually keep improving and improving it and hold your spot. So I think whilst that's a tough mindset to be in, I think it actually helps me maintain a higher level. But, um, yeah, I did sort of bounce backwards and forwards between midfield and, and back pocket, midfield, back pocket. I think every time a new coach came, I sort of moved backwards and then had to fight my way back into the midfield. Um, luckily, no one sort of left me up forward for too long because I don't think I would be a really effective small forward like a, a Stephen Milne type. Yeah, yeah. And that paranoia, there'd be music to the ears of the coach at the time. That's the exact sort of feeling they, they probably want to a large degree. Hey, round four of that 93 season, you're playing Collingwood at Victoria Park. Obviously, after the siren... Winmar lifts his jumper up to point to his skin. As a teammate and a player on the ground at the time, were you aware of this at, at the moment that it took place? No, we weren't because it was a uh, a bit of a frenzy after the game. Um, we as we we'd won for a period of you know we had won at Victoria Park for a long, long time. Uh, it was a bit of a, a stirring win. There, there was a lot happening. I, I sort of recall there were some people who ran on the ground after the game, sort of give us you know, pats on the back. I think the St Kilda supporters, as they do, they get a bit overexcited. And uh, there, there was a lot happening in the, in the rooms after the game. There was you know, the song and cheers and all that sort of stuff. Um, what Nicky was sort of railing against, um, that, was, that was pretty evident. Um, we, could, we could hear that sort of stuff. Um, you, you got near the bench, you know, quarter time breaks, that sort of thing. You could hear that sort of stuff. So it wasn't until the next day that we really saw Wayne Ludby's photo and um, we actually saw the, the real reason behind it. But uh, at the day, it was a bit of a, a frenzy of winning at Victoria Park, which uh, wasn't something we'd done very often. I don't think he played on this particular day, but what was it like looking up coming out of the midfield to see Plugger tearing out of the goal square? And, and what was your relationship like with Tony Lockett? Yeah, uh, the early days, I was probably a bit scared of Tony, to be totally honest. <laughs> um, Join the club, eh? Yeah, Tony, he won the Brownlow in my first year in uh, 87, and he kicked his first 100 goals in, in 87. Tony and a bunch of players lived in Ballarat. So they they drove down from Ballarat to, to train. And as soon as training finished, they jumped in the car and drove back to Ballarat. So they didn't sort of hang around and mingle a lot with the, the new players coming through. Um, Tony can very, very easily appear arrogant. Um, and, and he can appear quite gruff because he's you know, not a naturally sort of smiley sort of a, a person at that time. So all of those things combined, I was a, a bit wary of, of the big fella. Um, but what I came to learn over the years that uh, it wasn't gruffness and, and it wasn't anything like that, that Tony was just actually a, a very shy person in himself. And uh, even though he was having great success on the field, uh, he still felt a little bit uncomfortable in coming to us younger players 
and 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 you know playing that sort of mentor role with us younger players and doing all those sorts of things. It wasn't until probably uh, my wife Fiona and and uh, Tony's wife Vicky became good friends, probably about three or four years in, that they we we started to socialise away from football, and that's when he really opened up and sort of showed the, the relaxed Tony that he was. And you know he, he was a wonderful, wonderful fellow. But it was just in that sort of football circumstances, he was very focused, but not necessarily like captain type material by any stretch. But mm. on the field, I used to be mesmerised at times with you know kicking ten goals just regularly. I think it was the the start of the ninety one ninety two probably ninety two season where he missed the first six games with a crook ankle, came back, kicked thirty odd in the first three weeks, and averaged seven and a half goals for the season. It was just in awe of, of what he could actually do. And uh, yeah, could take a contest to Mark, a Mark in the lead. His ground skills were completely underrated. Very rarely fumbled a ball between his uh, below his knees. And um, yeah, he, he was just the, the, the consummate footballer. He, he could do everything at a, at a freakish level. And the other thing about Tony is that it was renowned that he wasn't a great trainer. And to be honest, he wasn't a great trainer. <laughs> you know, getting himself fit, all that sort of stuff. Uh, if, if you wanted him to do a drill just for the sake of doing a drill or to run up and down the ground for the sake of running up and down the ground, uh, he'd really struggle. But if you made it competitive, if you said, Rodeo, we're doing lane work, and it's this lane against that lane, and the winner you know, doesn't have to do a lap or whatever, Tony would be up the front going backwards <laughs> and forwards, backwards and forwards just to win. <laughs> But if there was just a, a lane where he could get to the front of the line and say, yeah, Berkey, you go, yeah, Harv, you go, and he'd step to the back and then he'd go again. But he was just probably the most competitive man that uh, I've ever met. And if I, if you can take us to 94, he leaves at the end of that season, Tony Lockett, obviously leaving a massive hole as well in the process. How did that affect the playing group? And did you and the rest of your teammates see it coming when he left for Sydney? Um. No, I, I, people were saying, is Tony going to go? Is Tony going to go? And I honestly thought, no, um, because at the time, you know, 94 wasn't his greatest season. At the time, there, Tony was really not liking football. I, I think it's fair enough to say that. He, 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 in his perfect world, he'd, he'd turn up and play and he'd go home and he'd turn up and play and that'd be it. Not all the other rigmarole that went along with football. And I thought, if he, if he goes to another team, he's suddenly going to be in the spotlight, especially if he went to Sydney. Goodness me, yeah. Uh, that, that'd be in the spotlight. There's, there's talk about him going to Collingwood. I thought, Tony doesn't like that. It's not going to happen. But, um, you know, in the end, he, he did. And to be honest, it was probably the best thing possible for him because speaking to him a couple of years in Sydney, he said he just loved it. He, he could walk down the street, get a sandwich, go, go to the pub, and no one knew who he was. Yeah. And he absolutely loved that. So it was the best thing that possibly happened. And thankfully for the game, he actually did. Because now we've, you know, he extended the career of the greatest goal kicker ever. But I think if he had stayed here in Melbourne and certainly stayed at the Saints, we wouldn't have seen those latter years of, of Tony Lockett. So yeah, yeah. Uh, he certainly did. Let, left a big hole in the club by no 
by no stretch. And then a year later, I guess Danny Frawley retires after a great career, the captain, to leave a pretty big hole at the other end. And in the process of finding a replacement as captain, Stan Elves is the coach of the time. He makes the decision to appoint you and Stuart Lowe as joint captains. And you touched on this with with your dad, Barry, earlier. Leadership was always something that sat relatively comfortable with you. Um, what was that process like? And, and was it something that you clearly relished and, and, and took on and played your best football with that with that title? Yeah, it was sort of like a, a bit of a, a culmination because for some reason when I when I first started, I think Daryl Bulldog introduced me at a jumper presentation as a as a future captain of the, the football club and and those little offhand comments tend tend to stay with a, a player. Uh, it's almost like a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. Uh, Daryl Bulldog thought I could be a, a future captain of this club. Um, yeah, how do I make that come about? And it's, uh, it's, it's funny how that sort of thing works. And so it planted the seed in the back of my mind. And so it's a case of, okay, well, what, what do I need to do? I need to run around and pat everyone on the backside and tell them how well they're going. I need to learn the game plan and answer questions and that sort of thing. And hmm. um, we, when Danny did retire, uh, we'd left everything up to Danny pretty much for, for nine years straight. Everything was on his shoulders and, uh, we looked around for a, a suitable replacement and there wasn't one. I, I wasn't ready to do it by myself and Stuart Lowe probably wasn't ready to do it by himself. But if you put two of us together, we both had strengths and weaknesses that would hopefully make up to becoming a, a good captain. And um, I think that was a, a smart move by Stan and the club to actually do it because uh, that uh, we probably had a, a modicum of success after that. So I think it was a, a really good model with the three of us doing it for the, oh, sorry, the two of us doing it for the for the next three years. Well, that first season that you were captain was probably one of your very best. 96, another best and first, another All-Australian gong, and you just one vote off winning the Brownlow medal. And what, what was a crazy night? I mean, Corey McKernan obviously should have made it three winners with Voss and, and Herb, but was ineligible an el- an due to suspension. And you finished with the 20 votes with Chris Grant. That was pretty crazy, but it was a pretty crazy year. I mean, the lights went off in the third quarter of your round 10 game against Essendon at Waverley. You're out there that night as well. Yeah, that was a really strange night, that one. Um, I remember the, the lights went off. We, we huddled on the boundary line thinking, okay, we're going to come back on, so I'm going <laughs> to flick the switch. Oh, that's not going to happen. Okay, go in the room. So go in the rooms, but make sure you, you stay warm. So we're jogging around in circles in the dark in the rooms and it wasn't probably a half an hour later. Somebody said, that's it, you know, grab your gear, off you go. And we still didn't know what was going to happen and came back and played for 30 minutes on a, on a Tuesday night. So how, very, bizarre very bizarre. That, how bizarre would that have been as a player in that time to come back uh, a few days later for a, for a quarter? Weird. Yeah, look, it, it was tough because we were behind on the scoreboard. And so it was basically, uh, you know, uh, come back two days later and just have a, an all-out dash at it for 30 minutes. It was almost like a, a free hit, extra time, you're behind, away you go. So even though we were feeling a bit sore and sorry from, from playing three quarters, you had to go out there and, and go hell for leather for, for half an hour. And you know, I think the warm-up and cool-down lasted longer than actually playing the game. So <laughs> it, it was it was strange. But I, I there was talk about, oh, Essendon in France, they're just given the four points. Um, whilst there was 
whilst there was a heartbeat, whilst there was a chance we could run over them in half an hour, we weren't going to settle for that. We'd go back and play for 20 minutes if it meant that we could you know, possibly have a chance of, of winning and have Essendon either win or lose the game fairly. You're with This Is Your Sporting Life, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. After this break, Nathan's memories of that 1997 grand final against the Crows. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Sporting Life. We're chatting with one of St Kilda's favourite sons, the Hall of Fame legend Nathan Burke. Well, Nathan, by 1997, you're in full flow. Another great year, third in the Brownlow, and you're All-Australian again. But there's a sour taste to the season, obviously, when Adelaide beats St Kilda to the Premiership. Yes, that wasn't the, uh, the end that we, we wanted from that season. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a meteoric rise to be honest, to, to that point, because uh, as you mentioned before the break, that uh, you know, Danny Foley retired at the end of 95, uh, Plugger went at the end of 94, I think it was, and in return for Plugger going, we, we got four 17-year-old players, so we got Ozzy Jones, Matty Lappin, Joel Smith and Tony Brown, mm. and with Danny Foley going, Plugger going, most of the football world thought, you know, well, they're St Kilda, they're, they're rebuilding you know, for you know, Russell Morris retired, and a lot of the other senior players, they thought there goes the Saints. There, there's sort of four or five years rebuilding. We won't think too much about them, and um, sort of Stuart Lowe, myself, Robert Harvey, Jamie Shanahan, some senior players. We thought yeah, that's we we don't want to wait four or five years because we're going to be 30, and that'll be the end of our careers, and we would have achieved nothing. So we we really set about changing the, the culture of the club and uh, sort of redesigning who the heroes were. And luckily, we had guys like Robert Harvey who you know, trained like a, a complete madman at times, sometimes to his own detriment. Um, we had to put Harvey up on the pedestal and say, hey, you young blokes, if, if you want to be respected around here, look at this bloke and uh, look, look at what Stuart Lowe does, how hard he trains. And um, we had players set an example. We had young players who were impressionable following those examples. And we thought... Now, if we do that, how quickly can we turn this around? And I think at the end of 1995, we finished 14th out of 16 teams. 96, we, I think we finished 10th out of 16 teams. And uh, yeah, at the end of home and away in 97, we were on top of the ladder. So it was a bit mm. of a meteoric rise. And even at the start of 97, we were, you know, I think we were about 50-50 for the first six or seven, eight games. And then it all clicked together and... Uh, it was just like riding a, a, a wave. We were in that really enviable position of if we go out and play our brand of football the way we want to play, it doesn't matter what the opposition do. They yeah. can do 100 different things and, you know, what? We'll, we'll still win the game. And I look at teams these days and, and try and identify which ones are in that mode. And people say, who's going to win the flag? Well, the one who's in that mode who just thinks, you know what? It doesn't matter what the other team do we're going to win this game. And it's, that was probably the that one period, probably two-thirds of a year out of my whole career, really, where we were in that zone. And, uh, boy, it's a, it's a fun place to be. Oh, I was going to say, it must be an amazing feeling as a player. You mentioned the Saints win the minor premiership. So you won 15 matches in the home and away season. But uh, you speak of that purple patch. So you win the last nine 
to make the grand final and, and Robert Harvey wins the Brownlow medal as well. So in the qualifying final, you count for Brisbane easily by 46 points at Waverley. Then you take care of North Melbourne in the prelim by five goals. So by, by grand final day against the Crows, you haven't lost a game for two and a half months. You're up by seven points at half time. Looking back on it now, and I know a lot of water's gone under the bridge all these years on. What do you think went wrong and how does it sort of sit with you today? Um, yeah, so initially, what what went wrong? Um, we went in at half time, as you said, we we were up, but the 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 message from the the coaching staff, the 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 mood of the room was was not as it should have been, like we were we were up. Mm. Uh, it was it was a bit sort of confrontational it was you know we're, we're not doing well enough we should be doing a lot better blah 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 and I think and, and this is this is as fragile as players can be it, it probably flattened some of the players um, there was individuals that were were sort of pointed out for, for not playing well and um, the the mindset that you know, and you, you don't need a lot of players that have this mindset, and speaking of some players afterwards, they they certainly did get in this mindset of you know, they they went out there not thinking, hey, we're up, let's keep doing what we're doing, but let's just do it a, a little bit better, and we can win this game, get back to the way that we want to play the game. There was other things going through their mind, and and you do that in the grand final, and you'll get run over, and uh, that ended up being the case. You know, I can't question the guys' effort. But uh, it, was that, it was probably the mindset that, that really got us, if anything. So mm. how do I reconcile with it now? Um, people say, oh, you know, you've lost the grand final. You know, you have a runners-up medal and um, did you throw it away like some players do and you'd rather not get there to lose? Absolutely not. I, I'm glad that we got there. I, I, I would rather get there and lose than not get there at all because at least now I know that I had a crack and on the day, we weren't good enough. If we didn't actually get there, I'd be forever thinking, oh, would, would we have been good enough? You know, could we have won that game? And I don't know. But you know, we had a crack. And on the day, the Crows were better than us. Um, yep. we, we had some injuries with Peter Everett and Lazer Vitovic out. You know, they were very, very, very important players for us. But the same token, the Crows had some really important players out as well. So I can't use that as an excuse, unfortunately. So, Bergie, you'd go on to become solo captain from 98 to 2000. There was plenty more individual success to follow, but albeit in some pretty testing times, Stan Ells moves on, Tim Watson comes in, and there were some uh, tough years there. And you had been incredibly durable, but also by 2001, your luck turned. So you do your knee in round 10 that year, and again in 2002 in round three. With the round three 2002 knee, I think you're 32. Was retirement a consideration at that point? Um, not really. Uh, it probably should have been. Um, but, you know, I, I'm forever grateful that, that Grant Thomas was coaching at the time. And uh, I, I remember it was the, the day after I, I'd had the scan done that day. I was sitting on the floor of the medical room, uh, just waiting for, for my turn to see the doctor and that sort of thing. And, and Grant came in and um, we... We, we basically just sort of looked at each other and and I don't know the exact words that were spoken that but it was it was the, the gist of it was that you know you can't end like this 
it, it just you know, can't end with you know, missing a, a year and then playing three games and then mm. you know, missing the whole year. And uh, it was just a bit of an unwritten, unwritten sort of rule that you know it's not the end. Let, let's go again. And uh, you know, coaches would have absolutely been in their right to tell a 32-year-old coming off two knees that time's up. But uh, forever grateful to Grant that he, he didn't do that and managed to to get one more year in. So, yeah, that sort of level of respect was uh, really well appreciated. Yeah, he was very much the player's coach, uh, Tomo, wasn't he? And just going yeah. back to that first ACL in 2001, it happened on a pretty famous or probably more appropriately infamous night for the football club. It's round 10, as I say now. Malcolm Blight's the coach. He's been talked out of retirement in Queensland up there with a pretty, at the time, big money offer to coach the club. But obviously that tenure lasts only the 15 games and you played in 10 of those. But it was in that round 10 game where you do your knee for the first time that Blighty creates all sorts of headlines by keeping the players on the ground Colonial Stadium at the time after that loss to Melbourne. What what was life like under Blighty, and what did you make of that development? I imagine when you woke up in the hotel in the uh, hospital room. <laughs> um, yeah, to, what what a lot of people don't know is the the staying out on the ground after the game was was actually premeditated. Um, we were trying to find ways of of getting an advantage, doing something a bit different, and. At, at the time, that sort of particular period, early 2000s, the concept of a warm down was huge. We used to spend more time warming down than actually warming up right. for some unknown reason. And uh, <laughs> we thought, you know, we're, we're sitting around the rooms, jogging around circles in the rooms, your, your feet are killing you, you're jogging up and down on the hard floor. You know, it's, it's no good. We said, well, can we do this outside? And they got permission from the AFL. So it was actually premeditated that we were going to do our warm down outside. What wasn't actually premeditated was that Blighty was going to get us all to sit in the centre circle uh, while he addressed the team. And that's the famous photo of, of all sitting in the centre circle. Uh, yeah. um, I don't know why he wanted to do that. I remember sitting right on the edge with my left leg sort of stuck out the circle. Oh, so you were there. I, I assumed you, you were yeah. uh, off the hospital, but you were there. No, no, yeah, no, I was, I was there. I was part of it. I did, I did do the warm down, but I sat in the circle and uh, I had to sort of, even though my leg was not in great shape, in a brace, uh, had to try and keep it inside the centre circle. So we had like 22 guys sitting in the centre circle. Um, and that was just sort of the, the stuff Blighty would do. It was a, it was a very interesting time under Blighty. Um, the, the whole way it started with him living in Queensland and popping down every now and again during the pre-season and we didn't touch a football for the whole time before Christmas. All we did was run around in circles and until you beat your time trial that he set, you weren't allowed to touch a football. And then when we did touch a football, we were all super fit and doing hamstrings left, right and centre because we were running flat out and kicking the footy and they weren't used to it. And it was a very, very unusual time. But, um, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, I only lasted, what, 15 rounds. 15 games, yeah. What a time that was. And it was great, as you touched yeah. on, after pretty much back-to-back recos that you get back in 2003. At the age of 33, you get the 19 more games in before hanging up the boots with 323 games under your belt. And your final game was a celebration, as I said, fittingly off the top. It would come against Richmond. And how great that your old skipper, Danny Frawley, is the coach at the time. And even Buckets Lowe is one of his assistants. That must have been a great way to put a full stop on it all. Yeah, look, it was 
it was great to have them there and great to be part of it, but it, it, it almost didn't happen. Uh, and because we that was a, the Saints' last home game, and so it was actually Grant Thomas's idea. He said, "Look, you can uh, actually two two things were, were going to happen. Stuart Lowe finished on three twenty one, um, and if I went past Stuart, well then I would become the game's record holder." I actually went to the club and said, how about I pull the pin on 321? And Stuart and I have the same amount of games. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, yeah, that, that would be... I, I would love to share that honour with Stuart being co-holders. And um, unfortunately, 321 wasn't a home game. I think it was a, an away game. And they said, yeah, look, we, we'd rather your home game or your last game be a home game, which happened to be... 323 so I thought okay well that's probably good for the family and and things like that so that's why we went on to 323 but then Danny was actually under the pump a little bit as coach of Richmond at the time they weren't doing that well and there was rumblings about you know this this you know being his, his last chance his last few rounds as coach and all that sort of stuff and I thought, you know, there's a fair chance that we could get up for this last game. And if we play really well, it could be the the knife in, in you know, Danny's coaching career. So that sort of went through the mind as well. But then I think uh, we had games in Tasmania and in the state after that. So in the end, the, the, the send-off in front of the family and friends won the day. And as it turned out, we won by 80-odd points and it probably didn't do Danny's coaching career <laughs> any favours at the time. So... There's a little bit of a tinge of guilt with that one as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a fascinating day that was. Hey, we're talking to Nathan Burke on This Is Your Sporting Life. All thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We'll be back shortly to wrap up with Nathan Burke, who's definitely stayed busy after hanging up the boots. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Sporting Life, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Nathan Burke is our guest today. Well, Burke, life after footy has certainly been busy for you. And as we've touched on throughout the show today, leadership and coaching have always interested you, and now you're combining both. Yes. Uh, yeah, very, very fortunate with uh, what I've, I'm living with at the moment. So, uh, obviously, coaching the uh, Western Bulldogs AFLW team, which uh, first year last year was an absolute pleasure. We we didn't win a lot of games, but you know, working with the the players there and and being part of the Western Bulldogs, who thankfully really walk the talk in terms of putting resources and and effort into their AFLW team. They are an amazing outfit with Amit Baines and Peter Gordon and Chris Grant and, and what they do there for the players. But, uh, yeah, away from that as well, I've worked for various management consultancy companies, but the last four or five years I've been out doing my own little thing. So managed to get myself some, some programs in primary schools, being an ex, ex-school teacher. Uh, that's sort of taking me back to my roots. But, some corporate programs, some sporting programs, just leadership, well-being, resilience, and uh, yeah, living my life, helping people, um, 
which is the the key. So whether I can help people through coaching or help people through my work and uh, help them do better at their work, that's a, a pretty satisfying way to live. And you helped your old club, St Kilda, for a period of time as well. He served on the board there and I think as the, the Saints director of football there for a while. I think you uh, joined the board in 2008 for, what, seven years or so. What was that experience like? Yeah, it was a fascinating experience to see a football club from pretty much the other side of the fence. Yeah. Obviously, I think I, I knew the football department pretty well. But what actually went into running a football club with, because uh, I, I pretty much stayed away from boards and, and things like that through my whole playing career. Some players do get to know them really well and um, you know, I, I could say g'day and that, that was about it. But to understand the importance of, of fans and, and members and, and really what it meant from the club from a, a financial point of view and, and sponsors and the difficulty in getting sponsors and relationships with, with AFL and the, the tightrope you have to walk sometimes to get what you want and all that sort of thing. It was a it really was a, a fascinating period. And, uh, yeah, I managed to, to do it for, for seven years. And, uh, yeah, thankful for the club that they sort of trusted in me to, to play a role in, in such a, a vital part of the club. Now, you served on the AFL match review panel, as it was known in your yep. time. As a high-profile player, I'd imagine you get used to the level of scrutiny and pressure in your day-to-day life. But what was this like? <laughs> um you, you realise very quickly that you can't please everybody. <laughs> Even if you get an absolute no-brainer right, there'll be somebody who won't be happy. So if you let a player off, well, that club are happy, but the ones that he belted, well, they're not happy, vice versa. So you, you just got to reconcile the fact that you can't please everybody. But, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Even under the scrutiny that we got, I still really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, it was a way of of shaping the, the safety of the game and how the game's played. And not very often you get that opportunity to do that. And so I took it really seriously from that point of view because the decisions that we were making actually do shape the game. You can do this or you can't do this. And that filters right down through all of the local leagues and all the junior leagues and, and everything else. So it was a, a really big responsibility that we, we took seriously. Oh, well, footy fans, as you would know, are incredibly passionate about the match review process and the decisions that, yep. that come out of it. Did you ever get stopped down the street by punters wanting to know how you could possibly have come to a certain decision? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, punters in the street, I if I nailed a St Kilda player, I'd have ex-teammates, you know, and they were the worst because you've got a relationship with them. So they had no compulsion at, at all to actually say, hey, you're an absolute dickhead for, for doing that. Why did you do that? But uh, what, one of the things that always frustrated me about it was that the, the the level of knowledge on the actual system that the AFL employed, because I was one of the sort of first to come through the point system and all that sort of stuff, um, the level of knowledge out there and the explanations that the AFL were giving were, were not satisfactory. And I would get increasingly frustrated by listening to TV coverage or radio coverage and the commentators wouldn't actually know know what the table, how it works. And they'd be saying stuff that was contradictory to the table. And I'm thinking, okay... I don't blame the punter who rings up SEN and has a go at the MRP because you know, on the weekend, the commentator said this. 
Well, the commentator's wrong, so you can't blame the pundit from being wrong. So even now, I think that the level of knowledge of how the table works and, uh, and, and what happens is still not where it needs to be. Mm. And I think, one, it's the, the journalists need to learn it and know it. Like even, even last week the, with the Tom Lynch punch to the guts, yeah. listening to the radio, there, there are some, some saying, oh, he's got to get a week, he's got to get a week, he's got to get a week. Well, no, according to the table, it's, it, there's no chance he's going to get a week. It, it just can't happen unless they grade that medium, which is not going to happen. Um, but that needs to be the dialogue that's coming out uh, amongst the, the journalists and the, the ex-players because I think the public need better information about the MRP. And again, they still won't agree with it all, but they'll probably understand it better. You must have some real empathy for someone like Chris o, Michael Christian, who's the sole figurehead now and has to bear the brunt of it on his own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do. And um, I can see how he makes some decisions. Um, even though you, you, the pub test might be saying, well, no, that, that's got to get a week. But he's, he's hamstring in, to a certain degree because he doesn't have mm. the capacity to just go outside the table. If the table spits out, that's, that's the punishment. Well, that's the punishment. As much as you try and sort of, there, there are gray areas. Is it medium? Is it not medium? Is it careless? Is it intentional? No, they're, they're all gray areas. But uh, you, know, you, you try and be as consistent as you possibly can. Just changing tack uh, somewhat, a uh, tragic set of circumstances last September. The impact, uh, the loss of Spud, Danny Frawley had on those who knew him was was obviously very profound. I, I imagine for you, Nathan, no words can describe the shock you would have felt when he obviously died last September. Uh, no, no. It's, um, even now, it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're coming up to 12 months later. Um if, if we have a, a place function or a get-together, you, you, you still expect the mm. larger-than-life character to come walking through the doors. And, and the fact that he won't, it, it's still you know, incredulous. You, you can't understand that he won't actually be there because Danny was always the guy who was probably the organiser of the function to start with. Uh, he'd be the, the MC. He'd be going from group of player to group of player telling the same stories that I've heard probably 30 times each about Daryl Baldock and a story about Joffa Cunningham. And you'd hear the same stories, yet you'd still laugh every single time that he told the story. Um, you, you, it still can't fathom that that isn't going to happen. And, um, yeah, I, I'm, it's probably going to take some quite some time for us to truly come to grips that the, the big mm-hmm. fellow won't, won't be amongst us anymore. Yeah, and as you say, coming up on that 12-month anniversary of it as well. So um, all our thoughts will be with uh, his family at that point in time. Bergie, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. I mean, you were the permanent fixture in that St Kilda region room for so long, but you didn't just have longevity. You had consistent longevity, which I know was important to you. Your helmet was your trademark, but so was the courage, the loyalty that you say, the selflessness, and so many footy fans respected your unrelenting attack on the contest. Thanks so much for joining us today. No, thanks, Sam, and um, mate, c- congrats to you two on the, the research you do on today and, and on these things too. You know, a lot of people don't do that sort of effort in, in, into what they do, but uh, mate, you've, you've pulled up some, some names and some, some uh, mm-hmm. activities that I'd, I'd long forgotten, so well done to you too, mate. Uh, too kind, Nathan. Uh, thanks for joining us, and thank you for joining us also. 
You've been listening, of course, to This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Just jump online to find tobinbrothers.com.au. We'll catch you next week to celebrate the life of another sporting icon. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91